That was excellent. Thank you for that. Well, I want you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me back to the book of Genesis. And we're going to be focusing this morning on Genesis 49 in verses 8 through 12. And what we've been doing for this Advent season, as far as our Advent series is concerned, is we've been focusing on the idea or the concept that we've seen throughout the book of Genesis as it relates to the usage of the word seed. It's just one word that um, it could be easily overlooked and not really thought of it as very significant. But in the book of Genesis, it is used, um, I think, 57 times out of 170 times that it's mentioned in the Old Testament. And so it becomes really a prominent theme um, when you consider how it's being used in the book of Genesis, especially as it starts off in Genesis 3 and verse 15 in the aftermath of the fall when God pronounces the curse. He speaks to both the serpent and he speaks to the woman and he, he tells the serpent that um, you know the woman's seed will bruise your head. And so we, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago and we related how that is a promise that God's going to bring about the redemption uh, through this seed. And it's amazing that even from the very beginning, that God has a promise of redemption or a promise of salvation to bring his people back to that good creation which he started. Now, it shouldn't surprise us when we consider the nature and the character of God who knows all things, um, especially when we consider what the book of Revelation tells us about the the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So God already had a plan of redemption. And he begins to show the inklings of that when he pronounces the curse on the serpent. And he puts enmity between their two seeds. And then throughout the book of Genesis, we actually can trace that seed. Um, we can trace that, that lineage, so to speak, the descendants that, be, that come out of the woman that God has his hand upon and we saw it last week, especially in the, in the person of Abraham, the blessing of this seed. And I want us to think about it in relation to the seed being a royal seed, where kingly seed. I think that's the hint that we see when we consider its usage in the book of Genesis. And especially as we trace that through the history of salvation to the Lord Jesus Christ, it becomes very evident that the the motif or the theme of the seed, not only is it covered in redemption and salvation and blessing, but also it has the idea of kingship. Now, I think that a lot of our problems in this world could be, could be solved, especially as far as government is concerned, to be solved if we had one person in charge. Of course, the problem with that is that you've got to have one good person in charge. And that's one of the things that you actually see throughout Scripture is that the, the nation of Israel would rise and fall based on the kind of king that they, they would have. So we're, we're looking for it as Christians. We're looking for a king, a king who will rule over us in justice and righteousness. And we, th this is the reality of what we all need. Is we need someone to rule over our lives. Because when we begin to start taking charge of our own lives and thinking that we know how to rule our lives and we know how to govern ourselves, then all kinds of mischief begins to happen. So we need a ruler, we need a king who will rightly rule over us 
in uh, you know, with, with grace and with uh, justice and with um, you know with the, as, as a as a king. So we're we're continuing thinking about the seed of the woman, and I, I really appreciate too during Christmas season how we've seen all these songs and how there is so much verbiage in them that is tied so nicely to the text of Scripture. And so this morning, for instance, we sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and, and in the fourth verse, uh, it was, by the way, it's, it's not in a lot of versions of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, but in the fourth verse, we see these words, Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruising us the serpent's head. That's, that's the topic that we've been talking about over the last several weeks. And so we, we saw last week that the seed is identified with Abraham and will be a blessing to all the nations. And Abraham has a pivotal road, p- pivotal role in the perpetuation of this seed and the descendant. But one of the things that we were considering about Abraham that I hinted at and I made note of last week is that there was an indication that the seed or the descendant would be royalty. And there are clues related to the theme of a royal seed all throughout Genesis, but beginning in God's call of Abraham out of the land of Ur, he gives a series of statements related to blessing. And I noted that the blessing to Abraham individually had to do with royalty. It had to do with him personally being a, a very wealthy man, that he was a man that had wealth that was fit for a king. And Moses, as he narrates the life of Abraham, that he gives us various ways in which this really fits with Abraham as being a king. Now, it is possible that the idea of the individual blessing to Abraham could be related to children, his posterity, which blessing and children are normally tied together. But the previous line before that is, I will make you a great nation, which presupposes he's going to have the blessing of children. And then it follows with, I will bless you, meaning I will give you wealth. I will materially bless you. And so it's an, it's an individual blessing of speaking to the prominence that Abraham is going to play in that culture, in that day and age. And the royal identity of Abraham is confirmed in Genesis 14, when his nephew Lot is taken captive by kings. And upon hearing this, Abraham takes 318 trained servants and he defeated the king. And not only did he recover Lot, but he also plundered all of the king's goods. And then they wanted to make a treaty with him. So he's, he's attacking all these kings. He plunders their goods. And now the kings want to make a, a treaty with Abraham. Now the text never tells us that Abraham's a king. But behind all of this imagery, it's showing that he's functioning like a king in some way, shape, or form. And then um, God gives to Abraham, uh, which is more noteworthy, he gives to Abraham a promise. We've seen, we saw the promises last week in uh, chapter 12 and also chapter 22, but also sprinkled throughout those chapters are instances where God repeats his promise, and he makes this statement to Abraham in Genesis 17, 6, when he says, kings shall come from you. Kings shall come from you. And then this is also echoed to Sarai in chapter 17 and verses 15 through 16. Kings, uh, people shall be from her. And then following Abraham, there are only a few allusions to kingship related to his descendants. Isaac and then Jacob. 
but they are noteworthy. So it's not just though that they're uh, they're just all over the place as it relates to Isaac and Jacob, but they are important in how this seems the narrator is portraying both of them because these are both seeds of Abraham. So, so Abraham is is pictured as a king, and then those that follow after him actually have some uh, kingly identity of themselves, especially his direct descendants. Thinking about Isaac, his importance is reflected in that he himself enters a treaty with the king of Philistine. In a promise of God that echoes Genesis 17, Jacob is promised, kings will come from your body. And there's even an interesting comment by the narrator, by, by uh, the narrator Moses, in Genesis 36, 31, which says, Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. So what this anticipates is that there is a royal dynasty and the future of Israel. Now, what, what I'm getting at with this is that the, the introduction to the seed of the woman has messianic overtones. And when I use that word messianic, I'm using it in the, I, the, the concept of its full meaning, uh, that it has the overtones of one who is anointed by God. And there are three offices in the Old Testament that were anointed by God, the king, the priest, and the prophet. And so it really appears that Genesis, Genesis is, is sketching this seed, showing its prominence, showing its significance, showing how it's going to crush the enemies of the serpent, but also being specific in showing that this seed is going to be a king, that from this descendant, uh, this descendant of the woman, from the lineage of Seth, from the lineage of Abraham, from Isaac and Jacob, is going to come one that is a king. Then when we turn to Genesis 37, attention turns to one of Jacob's 12 sons. So from Genesis 37 all the way to Genesis 50, it's all about Joseph. And Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob. And Joseph had dreams. And what kind of dreams did he have? He had dreams that he was going to be a king. That his brother and even his father were going to bow down before him one day. Now, this incensed his brothers. It irritated his, uh, his father Jacob. But it incensed his brothers to such a degree that they wanted to kill him. But Judah, one of the brothers, prevailed and said, let's not do that. Instead, let's sell him into slavery. Now, that's, that's an important uh, introduction there to one of the brothers, Judah. There's, there's two instances or two narratives that surround Judah, and it has to do, one, with him prevailing on his brothers not to kill Joseph, and the other has to do with a very, uh, shall I say, risque uh, incident that involves his daughter-in-law. And then when we begin to turn the pages of Scripture, we find that Judah begins to be spotlighted. So when Joseph goes into slavery, he rises to the very level of being virtually a king over all of Egypt. God puts him in that place. He providentially and sovereignly puts him in that place for the perpetuation of the seed. Now, if you remember what was going on when Joseph makes his rise to the, the top of Egypt, he began for seven years to store grain. Because a vision or a dream had been given that there would be famine on all of the land for seven years. And so this famine begins to start and it hits 
with Jacob and his sons and all of them. Then they make their way into Egypt, not recognizing Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, and he brings them into Egypt so that they may survive the famine. And so God had put Joseph in that place of prominence, that place of kinship, in order to protect his seed, his descendant. But without Joseph being there and getting all the necessary materials for the famine, the seed of the woman would not have survived. And so we see in those chapters in Genesis Genesis 37 all the way to 50, that it's about the prominence and the kingship of Joseph. And then near the end, after Joseph is reconciled with with his brothers, finally reconciled with his father, his father becomes an old man. And then when we come to Genesis 49, that Jacob has these last words he's going to give to his 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, become the very nucleus of what's going to become the nation of Israel. And so he calls his son to gather around him and to hear, and he's going to pronounce a blessing on all of his sons. So he starts with son number one, with Reuben. He goes to son number two, Simeon, and then he comes to son number three, which is Judah. And now this is where our text is in Genesis 49, Begin verse 8. It said, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion who shall rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to a vine, and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. This is the blessing that Jacob gives to his son Judah. Now, it stands out in the wording of it, this, the, the way that he gives this blessing, the, say, the thing that he says about Judah is really incredible in and of itself. But it also stands out for the fact that as he goes through the list of the son, that when you begin to measure exactly what it is Jacob said to Judah versus all the other sons, that he has more to say to Judah than he does any of the others, with the exception of Joseph. He gives Joseph a very um, wide blessing himself. And so Judah and Joseph are comparable in content and in length of it. So one of the ways in which we find in the biblical literature, literature where there's emphasis, emphasis is being placed in something is the number of words that are being used there. So maybe you could imagine that scene yourself if you have siblings and one of your, one of your parents are, are getting ready to pass away and they have some things they want to say to you and bring one other sibling in, and they say just the two or three sentences, and then they bring that other sentence, that sibling in, and then they just go on and on and on and on about them. Now, that, that kind of is the scene that I would, I would picture that's happening with Jacob. As each son is coming in, and they're, they're all there, and they're hearing this, and maybe, just like all of us are, they're measuring what it is their dad's saying about them that makes one of the other better than the other. We, I don't know if that's something that you do or, or not, 
But, you know, I want my parents to like me better than they, they do my sister and my brother. And so, so what, what we have here is we have an instance of this. And, and here Jacob is saying these words to his sons, and yet he has more to say to Judah, and he has more flowering statements to say about Judah than he does any of the other sons. And so he's, he puts this prominence on him, this preeminence on Judah. And I want us to think about what it is that he's actually saying to him, and maybe for us to trace this throughout the history of salvation into the Old Testament and also into the New Testament and what it means. So there's a, there's a series of statements that he gives to Judah where he is pictured as a preeminent son. So notice what it said. So beginning in verse 8, he says, Your brothers will praise you. Now this is actually a play on his name, which means praise. The word Judah in Hebrew has at its very core the meaning of praise. Now, what's interesting about this, and I think this gives us a hint for us to think about what it actually means, is that the word praise is rarely directed toward humans in the Old Testament. So when that word is used, it's never, almost never used in direction toward a human. So the picture is, is that Jacob's or, or Judah's brothers, that they're going to pray him. Now, who do you think, or what do you think that word is usually directed toward? It's normally directed toward God. God is the one to be praised. And so as we think about that, that this may be a possible hint of messianic identity. This is more than just a man that's going to be praised, that this is someone else that's going to be praised. Since God is the only one that is normally praised with respect to that word. Now, it also, in, in a lot of ways, and especially when we come to this in a minute, where it speaks about the brothers will bow down before you, this is also the same thing that Joseph is told in his dream. And it came true. When Joseph was standing there, his brothers needed food, and they, they came before him, and they bowed before him because he was a king. He was somewhat, he was a ruler. Then we also see the language that's being used, that not only is he going to be prayed, but it says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. And this means that his enemies is going to be overcome. Now, there is similar imagery here to what we have seen in Genesis 3 and verse 15. The seed of the woman is going to do what? Crush the head of the serpent. So essentially, if you put your hand on the neck of someone, you're basically crushing their head. So there's some overlap here between what we saw in Genesis 3 and verse 15 and also as it relates to Judah, how he's going to put his hands around the neck of his enemies, saying that your enemies will not ever overcome you. And as we saw early on in Genesis 3.15, that there's going to be enmity between these two seeds, the seed of the woman and the, the seed of the serpent, which implies the idea is that the seed of the woman is going to have enemies. But Judah, this prophesied, or this blessing that's given to him, is that his neck, or his hand, shall be on the neck of the enemies. And then the other statement that we see here in this text, as I already mentioned, that the brothers will bow down. This, is, this was Joseph's dream, and it came true, and now it is said of Judah. But when is this going to happen? We never see this actually unveiling anywhere in the text. In fact, it's really interesting that Judah just kind of shows up all of a sudden 
He speaks when it relates to his brothers trying to, to kill Joseph. Then there's this very uh, tawdry tale about Judah and his daughter-in-law at Tamar. But where, what, who is Judah? How is it that he actually receives this blessing? That we're not actually told, but one of the things that we are told that goes further into the Old Testament in First Chronicles 5 and verse 2, which says that Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the ruler. Now, this is kind of significant in a lot of ways, in that there is a pattern that's been developed in the book of Genesis, where the blessing doesn't go to the normal person you think the blessing would go to. In this ancient Near Eastern culture, it was the oldest son that would receive the blessing. But what are we actually seeing throughout the book of Genesis? With Abraham's son who received the blessing. Not Ishmael, Isaac. With Isaac's son who received the blessing. Not the first son, Esau, even though that they were twins. Esau came out first, so technically he's the firstborn son. But Jacob is the one that receives the blessing. And now as we think about the 12 sons of Jacob, it doesn't go to Reuben. It doesn't go to Simeon. The blessing actually goes to Judah. So God is doing something in the context of this, um, of Judah. And, 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 and I'm, I'm a little bit mind boggled by this because at least last week I could pin something on Abraham of why he received the blessing. It was obviously God's gracious choice to call him out of the land of Ur. But when God called him out of the land of Ur, what did Abraham do? He obeyed God. And he followed God. He did something that was categorically not true of Adam and Eve when they were to obey God in the garden, and they did not. And so because Abraham obeyed God, then he received this, this blessing to be this great nation. But with Judah, we do not see any inkling of that. In fact, we see him as a, a participant in this scheme to kill his brother, Although he does keep them from killing him, and then we see this very, like I said, uh, risque tale about him and his daughter-in-law. And so the only thing that I can say about that is it, it speaks to the nature and the, uh, the vastness of God's grace. That even the most unlikely person that she would think would receive a blessing in which your brothers will bow down before you, you'll be praised, in which the, you will have your hand on the neck of your enemies, but the only thing I can say is grace, which is good news for us today, is it not? That God would use us, in spite of our sins, in spite of our background, in spite of our history, that God would use us for his purposes. And it's the same thing that we're seeing with respect to Judah. The other thing that is noted about Judah in verse 9 is his imagery of a lion. He's described as a fearless lion, returning from where the young uh, uh, lion that's going out and he's snagging his prey. Lions stalk their prey and they drag him into their lair where the young devour them. And like today, in this culture, lion was viewed as a mighty beast. We call the king of the jungle and they became symbols of loyalty. In fact, Yahweh himself is described in the book of Amos as a lion who roars. And then notice in verse 10, that speaks about the scepter and the staff. And these symbolize the monarchy 
which will be the Judah, which will be Judah. So you think about what that what the, the king would would hold that uh, you know golden looking uh, stick. Maybe you've seen pictures of something like that. He would hold that, and that would be the symbol of his monarchy. Now, interestingly, though, the use of staff may also be a subtle hint to the incident with Tamar, back in Genesis thirty-eight and twenty-four through twenty-nine. The staff actually plays an important role in the perpetuation of the seed and the descendant. Now, just not to get into all the details of the story, because that could be a sermon within itself, Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons. Well, he died. Then it was the responsibility of the next son to bring a descendant in place of the son that had died. Well, he refused to do so. And so Tamar decides that she's going to do something, what she considers maybe clever, and she disguises herself as a prostitute and entices her father-in-law to have sex with her and impregnate her. Now, in order to do this, um, he didn't have any money for it. So he said, I will give you my signet cord, and I will give you my staff, and I'll go get some money and come back. But when he comes back, guess what? She's not there. So when Tamar becomes pregnant, they call her a harlot, talk about hypocrisy, by the way, ready to drag her out and kill her, and then she unveils that signet cord and that staff. And then she has two sons. And those two sons actually become the perpetuation of the lineage and the seed and the descendant that actually leads to the Lord Jesus Christ. So interestingly, if you read the genealogy of Matthew there's three women that are included in that, in that genealogy. And one of them, the first one, is Tamar. The next one is Ruth. And then the, uh, it, just, it just lost me. I feel like Rick Perry in a debate right now. Couldn't name the other department he wanted to get rid of. But uh, which one was it? Huh? Rahab, Rahab, Rahab. I skipped one. Okay, so there's, there's three women of them. And all of them had um, a, a history just like Tamar. They were all Gentiles, and yet God uses these women to perpetuate the seed, the descendant, this king that comes from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now this is going to come from Judah. So I say all of that to say that the staff actually may be a subtle hint to that event, because if that staff had not been been, uh, shown, then who knows what would have happened. So it kind of becomes a symbol, if you will, of the perpetuation of the seed and that descendant. And then notice also that this, this sap or this, this, this king, uh, ruler, staff that is connected with, at least in my translation, it says, until Shiloh comes. That's when some translations and others, it is until tribute comes to him or until he whom it becomes Will come. There's, there's, there's alternate ways in which this is translated. In my translation, they don't know exactly what it means, so they decided to transliterate it. So they took the Hebrew character and made it the English word, and that's what we get with Shiloh. So it's not necessarily the place that is Shiloh, so since that the exact meaning is uncertain, but there are alternate, alternate Hebrew readings where it appears to have the meaning to whom it belongs or until he comes to whom it belongs. In other words, looking toward a future when this one who has this, this monarch, this king, when he will come. And 
when he comes, he will rule. And then notice it also speaks about um, the, the latter part of verse 10. It says, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And that's in plural. The obedience of the nations, meaning more than one nation, not just a nation that's going to come from Abraham, but the nations. The one coming from Judah will have worldwide reign. And then in verse 11, and into verse 12, it gives this picture of abundance. The picture is of a donkey tied to a choice vine and then washed in vintage uh, wine. So it's, you know, this donkey is just a, a common animal and there, there's so much wealth that we're going to just tie it to the thing that symbolizes our wealth. And we have so much money, we're not just going to wash it in water, we're going to wash it in the best wine that you can have. And so it pictures that coming from Judah is going to be one who has this abundance, who is wealth, who there is no, uh, there is no bottom to his, his wealth and, and all that, that he is. Now, as we think about this, as we're, especially as we're working our way through, think about how this, this trajectory goes through the Old Testament. Who is it that came from the tribe of Judah? Well, initially what we see that from the tribe of Judah, King David came. So the first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin, and that became a disaster. And then Samuel anointed another king, a son of Jesse, a son of Jesse from the tribe of Judah, whose name was David. And David becomes the ideal king. But if you read the book of Kings, all the kings are measured up by how they compare to, to David. Did they walk in the ways of their father David? Or did they not walk in the ways of their father David? And there is a great deal of resemblance between the language applied to David and even the, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. Because he is described as one whose seed will endure forever. We're told of David that his enemies will be crushed beneath his feet. In Psalm 72 and verse 9, the foes of the Davidic king are pictured as bowing down before him and licking the dust. But as we push this even further, we learn from the New Testament that Jesus is the greater David from Judah. In fact, what we learn from the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 14, it said, it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah. He is from the seed of Judah. He is from the seed of David. And even, with, even in the context of his birth, that he is born as a king. And not just any king, but also a king of all the nations. And that's one of the reasons why I read to you from Matthew 12, in Matthew 2 and verses 1 through 12, because in that, that picture, it gives us these kings that come from the east, non-Jewish kings, they come from the east, and what do these kings do? They bow down, and they worship him, and they give him gifts that are fit only for a king. And so right at the, out start, at, the, at the start of Matthew's gospel, with his genealogy, it starts with Abraham goes to David, and then he gives us this picture of how Jesus is that king from the tribe of Judah. And so Jesus was born as a king. The nations bowed down before him. They fell down and they worshipped him. He even lived as a king, died as a king, and rose victorious as a conquering king. And now the ascended king Jesus occupies his throne at the right hand of the Father, where he sits and he reigns, and he will come as a king. 
And everyone will see him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this is the king that we really need. So as I mentioned to you earlier, that I think a lot of our problems could be fixed by a king. But we need the right king. And only the Lord Jesus Christ himself can rule over us in such a way to fix all the problems of this world. And especially to fix the problems that are inherent within us. Now, whether you believe this or not, that we're actually living in an age where there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of this world. And you're either going to be ruled by the, the, the prince of this world, which is Satan, which is, which is the seed of the serpent, essentially, or you're going to be ruled by King Jesus in the kingdom of God. But rest assured that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, he will come as a king and every person will see him as a king and every single person will bow down before him and they will recognize him as king who has ultimate authority and ultimate rule over all peoples and a fulfillment with the blessing that was given to Judah. Now, all, we don't have just enough time to, do all of, to, to get into all this, but I do want to give you just a few verses from the New Testament that overlaps with what we see with Jesus Christ as king in fulfillment of this blessing that was given to Judah. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 25. It says, for he must reign. Talking about Jesus. He must be king until he has put all enemies under his feet. Now remember, you see the similarity in the language here from Genesis 3.15? He will crush the head of the serpent. And what's he going to do? He's going to reign until he puts his enemies under his feet, or to say it another way, to crush his teeth. It's similar to the language that we see as it relates to Judah, where his hand shall be on the neck of his enemies. Revelation 5, in verse 5, he is the lion. Thinking about Jesus. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Look, The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. You see that imagery there? Judah is described as a lion. And this imagery is applied specifically to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all this has to do in the context of the the, the angelic host. They're asking, who's worthy to open the scrolls? They get to the seventh scroll. Who's worthy to open it? And the scrolls are representing the unveiling. With a sovereign uh, work over the context of history. And the angels say, the, tri- the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is the one who is worthy to open his scrolls. And then Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Same thing that's applied for Judah, that it will not pass from his hand. Speaking about his monarchy and speaking about his rule. And so really when we think about the, the concept of the seed in Genesis, it's just more than just being discovered in all kinds of ambiguity, but it's telling us something specifically about this one who's going to come. It's draped in messianic overtone. And it's draped specifically in the fact that it is, it is pointing toward a king he was coming. And that king is Jesus. And that's the one that we worship today. This is really what this season is all about. For us to worship the king who has come to set up his kingdom. Who now rules and who reigns. And who in his second advent, he will come again as king. 
And not just king, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords who reign forever and ever. Let's pray.